0: The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers.
1: This week on Science for the People, we are revisiting animal research. We'll talk with philosopher John Hadley about the different philosophical perspectives on animal research, and we'll speak with philosopher Janet Stemwedell about current practices regulating research in the United States, and how to have productive conversations on what is often a hot-button issue. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a science writer with Science News and Society for Science and the Public. And first of all, I apologize for my voice. I have had a terrible cold, and you can probably tell. (laughs) Now, before I was a science writer, I was a scientist. And as a scientist, I performed animal research on mice, rats, and even monkeys. Mostly, I worked with mice. Uh, To find out the long-term effects of drugs on the brain, I gave mice drugs, like Ritalin, different kinds of antidepressants, and addictive drugs such as cocaine and methamphetamine. I ran them through behavioral tests where they would swim or run mazes, but I also ran behavioral tests where I had to give electrical shocks to their feet or put them in bright environments they were afraid of. I performed surgeries on them, and at the end of their experiments, I did kill them. Then I would use their tissues for more experiments. But while they were alive, I also cuddled them, played with them, fed them, kept their cages clean, and gave them treats like peanut butter chips or Fruit Loops. I always sacrificed the mice as quickly and as painlessly as possible. All of my surgeries were performed with the animals under anesthesia. We gave them medication for their pain. I never looked forward to ending their lives. But when animal rights activists found out that I worked with animals, I got numerous death threats. Sometimes I had to walk through groups of protesters on my way into work or conferences, protesting the research done in my building or field. Scientists I know personally have had their children threatened and their cars bombed. As I became a science writer, my advisors worried that my actions would bring more protesters and threats against our work, and they encouraged me to keep using a pseudonym. I didn't generally tell people I did animal research or talk about it much unless I knew somebody pretty well, too many times I'd mention it and have a new acquaintance who formerly was super impressed that I did biomedical research to help people suddenly start treating me with disgust. I believed, and I still do believe, that the work I did might one day have important effects on how we treat and understand mental disorders such as drug addiction and depression. But I also admit I feel guilty. I never wanted to hurt animals, and I do wonder sometimes how we judge how much a mouse's life is worth, and whether I was really doing the right thing. I'm here today with John Hadley, a philosopher at Western Sydney University in Australia, who works in animal and environmental ethics, and who is here to judge me on my past. Thanks so much for being here, John.
2: Thanks, Bethany. It's a pleasure.
1: To start, when philosophers think about animal research, they often start with what it is that we owe animals in terms of their treatment. Are there major schools of thought about what we owe animals?
2: Yes. So the main two theories would be the utilitarian theory and what's known as the deontological theory. And the utilitarian theory is based on the idea that we owe animals equal consideration of interests. So if you think of interest in terms of what it is that adds to an individual's well-being, then something that is in their interest makes their life go better or promotes their well-being. So for the utilitarian theorists such as the famous philosopher Peter Singer, uh, the, the most important interest to consider is the animal interest in not suffering. So pain makes their life worse and this means they have an interest in not feeling pain. So for Singer, all animals are equal, which means that for the researcher, they must think of animal pain as being as important as human pain. So if an experiment would justify inflicting on a human being the amount of pain that is being inflicted upon the animal, then the research is... Um, by the lights of the utilitarian theory, justify. But if the benefits of the research or the foreseen benefits would not legitimate using or inflicting that amount of pain on a human being, then the protocol shouldn't go ahead. So alongside this idea of equal consideration is a very important claim about discrimination. So for Singer... And other utilitarians to exclude animals from the utility calculus simply because they are not homo sapiens is discrimination akin to racism and sexism. Because if you think of two individuals, say each individual is in the same amount of pain, let's say you could um, classify their pain out of 10 in terms of intensity. Let's, let's say that both of them are at, at scoring 8. Uh, Two human beings in that situation, we would say you need to flip a coin. Uh, a male and a woman, we would say you need to flip a coin. But if one individual was a homo sapien and the other was a non-human primate, say, uh, most people would say, look, it's justifiable to give the human being pain relief. Uh, why just because they're human beings. For Singer that would be like saying, you know, we should give the pain relief to a man just because he is a male. Um, it's just a biological distinction that has no relevance to the individual's capacity to suffer, so we should ignore it. Uh, so in the the hypothetical case that I just described, the utilitarian would say you have to count their interests in pain equally, so you need to find some kind of non arbitrary, non-discriminatory way of uh, giving the human the pain relief uh, instead of the animal, but only some non-discriminatory way would be justified. Um, anything else would be just discrimination. So that's the, I guess, the most challenging thing for for non for people unfamiliar with philosophy to understand is that alongside this claim to equality based around the animal's interest in not suffering, there is also this claim that it is discriminatory to favor human beings over non-humans, and that is akin to racism and sexism. But I should say that the utilitarian position is not an abolitionist position. It doesn't rule out using animals full stop. Uh, As I said, if if you factor into the utility calculus the animal's interest in not suffering, but the benefits outweigh that interest, then the research is justified. So it's not protecting animals full stop so to speak the rights view or the the deontological position is much stronger than the utilitarian position in fact the rights view is best understood as an anti-utilitarian position and it it sees the basic idea of justice as around um, leaving individuals alone Uh, basically The claim here is that sacrificing an individual's interest for the greater good is fundamentally unjust. So simply applying the utility utility calculus to animals in that case on the rights view is seen as um, failing to do them justice. Instead, the animal is seen as having a particular kind of value, uh, a bit like kind of Judeo-Christian ideas about sanctity, the sanctity of human life. A particular kind of value that is, uh, over and above their interest in not suffering, or that is, uh, that manifests itself over and above their interest in simply not suffering, and based around an idea that they are autonomous in some way. So they, they have a, a capacity to order their life to make decisions for themselves, things like that. In the same way that you might say that about a a human being, that a human being is the author of their own lives and they should be allowed to get on with their lives, uh, the strong animal rights position kind of extends that view to animals and gives them rights as a result. So instead of just one right, which is the utilitarian view that animals have a right to have their interests treated equally in the utility calculus. The deontologist says that animals should have um, rights not to suffer, not to be used at all by human beings. Any animal, that is what the rights view stipulates as a subject of a life. So a subject of a life is a, a psychological creature that has an ability to satisfy its preferences, to have beliefs about the world, desires, these kinds of things. And once you are that kind of creature, you get rights not to be used by human beings. So that's quite a long explanation. But the two leading views are the utilitarian theory, which may allow research at some time, and the rights view, which says that it's inappropriate for humans to use animals at all.
1: And so these two views, neither of them are actually kind of the mainstream ethical position regarding animal research, because there is a lot of animal research that takes place around the world. Sure. What is currently mm. the mainstream ethical position on animal research?
2: Well, the mainstream ethical position would, is, is kind of operates under the umbrella of what we call animal welfare. So the animal welfare position is the idea that it is appropriate for humans to use animals for human purposes so long as suffering is kept to a minimum or that suffering is seen as necessary. So underneath that kind of license, it usually is the case that it plays out within research institutions in terms of utilitarianism. But unlike the view advanced by Peter Singer and and proponents of what we might call species-blind utilitarianism, the animal interest in not suffering is not given the same weight as a human interest in not suffering. The animal interest in not suffering is given a weight, but it's not as much as uh, the utilitarians would have it. Instead, the utilitarians would argue it's discounted, are unjustly, it's unjustly devalued and this licenses a lot of research taking place that wouldn't be justified if you gave the animal interest in not suffering the same weight as you would give a human interest in not suffering. And I should say that we're just talking about the animal interest in not suffering for the utilitarian. Pain is pain, or as Singer puts it, all animals are equal. What he means by that is in terms of their interest in not suffering. He's not saying they have an equal interest in life or um, they ought not to be killed painlessly or things like that. All he's saying is that as far as their interest in not suffering is concerned, the species doesn't matter. All animals are equal. So with that kind of uh, principle guiding you, would your research protocol be justified or not uh the existing norms says that's going too far you've got to count the animal interests, but you don't give them the same weight as you would give human interests so it's uh, you would probably know more than i how much weight is given to animal interests in laboratories but uh that's the, the the basic idea is that their interests count but they're not given as much weight as humans
1: and how is that how is that weight decided? Is there a school of philosophical thought that deals with animal welfare and how how the weight of an animal's suffering is is dealt with?
2: Good question. So you mean qualitatively or or quantitatively? I th- well, utilitarians are uh, challenged on this point uh, about human suffering as well because. You know, some people have a high tolerance uh, to pain. Others don't. Some people handle it differently. So utilitarianism comes from the idea of... Uti- well, a part of the original formulation of utilitarianism was to individuate utiles of pain. So each individual... Um, pain experience could be divided into utiles of pain, so one unit of pain. And then you summed those in terms of I- intensity and duration and a whole lot of other factors, but the main ones were intensity and duration. So Jeremy Bentham's idea, he was the original utilitarian, was that any decision, any piece of legislation a government was thinking of um, implementing, any decision it made, a person made in their personal life you ought to try and anticipate the impact of pleasure and pain in terms of intensity and duration. So how many people are going to be impacted? How strongly are they going to feel this impact? How long is the impact going to last? Uh, obviously, I mean, there is an empiric- a whole lot of empirical work that could be done to quantify that, you know, um, accurately. But I guess, you know, a lot of things in... Ethics require you to make, uh, r- you know, use reasonable foresight and to do the best you can. And it's a lot, a lot less, um, a, a lot more um, ambiguous or a lot less specific about how the outcome is arrived at. But, you know, presumably in the laboratory setting, you know that there's this procedure first and that procedure is going to take however long it takes and then we've got this procedure and this procedure is going to go for this length of time so the duration should be easily enough worked out um, and then I guess you would need to draw upon existing research or your own experience about observing behavior or animal reactions to certain kind of procedures to work out some kind of qualitative measure. But, you know, I've been in, I've had two accidents recently where I've been in ambulances and you get into the ambulance and they say to you, out of 10, how bad is the pain? You know, 10 is unbearable, zero is, uh, you know, I don't feel anything. And you just make a decision. So I I guess it's kind of like um, that kind of procedure that kind of process. You've got just got to do the best that you can.
1: Now, in your 2012 paper, you noted that the legitimacy of animal research in terms of policy, so for example, the way we carry out animal research right now is done under this mainstream ethical position that's basically about animal welfare um, and kind mm. of worked on in terms of animal welfare. And you noted that the legitimacy of animal research in terms of policy and what we do really depends on the society in which it is done. And that society, in general, has recently been trending toward an increase in the status of animals, um, giving animals under an animal welfare paradigm, I suppose you would say more weight. Mm. Um, why has that trend been toward increased animal status?
2: Well, I think, I mean, okay, so there's two, two things to think about there. One is, am I right in claiming that? Is there actually an increase in uh, public concern for animals and, 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 uh, is this something that needs to be, uh, reflected in, in the way that researchers use animals? And then is the reasons for why that is. Uh, I don't really know about the reasons for why that is. I, I just think that uh, there is evidence for around the world for a greater concern for animals and a recognition that there the existing ways that we deal with them uh, need to be. Uh, revisited, uh, maybe not, uh, in the end will we see much reform, but at least that we need to reacquaint ourselves with what we are doing and it needs to be more, um, uh, you know, people be- need to be more literate about what is going on. So I, I think in the, in that paper that you refer to, I was working under the assumption that, you know, where research is here to stay, it's, it's growing, in fact, the biomedical field. And, but at the same time, there is this acknowledgement, as, as, as you yourself suggested in the introduction, that, you know, there are serious costs involved in, in doing animal research. And the public, it seems to me, has an interest in uh, learning about, about the use of animals. I mean, a lot of government money, certainly in this country and I think also in the, in the States probably, is, is used to support research. And, you know, people make charitable donations to cancer research and all sorts of research organisations and they don't really know that they – Um, Do research on animals. So it's just kind of a more, uh, more a concern that people being informed is a good thing. And, you know, just like it might be in consumers' interest to be informed about where their food is coming from or what's in their processed food, similarly, there is a, a same kind of public interest argument in greater awareness about the nature and scale of, of animal research. And and I think, uh, you know, some of the broader kind of specific indicators of enhanced concern about animals would be, you know, recent inclusion of animals in uh, constitutional wording in certain countries in South America and uh, Recent high profile cases in America where people were trying to get uh, legal status for um, chimpanzees and citations. Um, in Europe, there is systems of animal solicitors where, where like a, a court appointed representative uh, represents animals in court cases. Um, you know, you could probably put alongside that increasing rates of pet ownership. Um so uh yeah i think I think there is uh, evidence that for an increasing concern about the treatment of animals
1: and what are your personal what what is your personal philosophical viewpoint about animal research
2: well i guess as as it was kind of alluded to in that paper is is I, I kind of try and work from where we are. I mean, my, my approach to the work that I do is that, you know, the, the idea is to design the best possible outcome starting from where we are. So that's a recognition that animal research exists and it's here to stay. So within that kind of framework, what what can be done? And And I guess I would like to see... The existing system uh, laid bare a, a bit more. I would like to see researchers be a bit more open about what they're doing, and when that when they go to promote their research to the public, I would like to see greater disclosure of the the usage of animals that has occurred to produce the the research results. I mean, this information is collected. By researchers, at least in Australia and the United Kingdom, there is quite good data on animal usage, both in terms of species, species and the actual number of procedures. So, this the collection of this data is recognition that the public has an interest in knowing about it. But my concern is that they just the people who don't who need to know about this data don't know about this data. I mean researchers know about it, activists know about it, but the, the vast majority of people don't get exposed to it. So one way that we could improve that is for researchers to disclose a little bit more, both in their public communication but also in their journal articles. And then uh, journalists who were uh Reporting on research could also disclose some of the details as well. You you hear it a little bit now, but you don't actually hear about the numbers or the kinds of challenges that the animals went through. So it would be a way of kind of uh, weaving the, the details into the narrative would be the, the obligation of the journalist to do it in a way which still makes their story a good read. Um, that would be the challenge for the journalist. But yeah, my, my own approach is is just to to try and ameliorate the situation rather than say, you know, approach it from the idea that there is this abstract theory which says that it's right or wrong, and that we should, you know, um, just read our norms off the abstract theory. I don't think that works for most issues that are contentious in society and and particularly animal research.
1: Now, some scientists might argue that being very open about what exactly goes on um, in animal research might make the public turn against it. You know, many of them have been on the receiving end of, you know, Mm. nasty, um, nasty threats and Mm. vandalism. Um, They're worried about an increase in extremism from activists Mm. But you've actually argued that you don't really think that will be an issue. Do you think it's possible that more details could turn the public against research?
2: Well, I think it I think the danger is not that the public would become violent. i I think there is a danger, of course, that the public may stop supporting research or become their support may be more qualified. Um, but just like any issue in liberal democracies, I mean, if, if people don't like it, then that's, that's the way it goes. I mean, you can't hide information from them that they have a, an interest in knowing on the, out of concern that they may not like the information. You're supposed to disclose it to them. Uh, I think the radical activists, they're already, they're already radicalized. Um, Research is being open about what they're doing is not going to um, radicalize people so much, um, any more than a report which mentioned animals at all would have that effect. I mean, it doesn't take much to radicalize somebody who is orientated towards it. So if, if you mention rats and mice at all, that would probably be enough. Um, and And it's, it's, common now for for researchers to, or for, for scientific reporting to include mention of the animals. What I'm suggesting is that some mention should be made on the numbers of animals involved and also the kind of challenges they endured. And I don't think that would have the effect of radicalising the public, but it may actually sensitise them uh, and and make them better informed about it and but that presumably is a good thing given that we collect this data now anyway what's the point of collecting it without sharing it to people
1: well john thank you so much for sharing your insights with us
2: no worries thank you very much bethany it's been nice to talk to you
1: we've linked to some of john hadley's articles on animal research at scienceforthepeople.ca When we get back, we'll be talking with Janet Stemwedel, a philosopher and chemist, about how animal research is regulated in the United States and what it's like to be part of that regulation.
0: Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, Check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back. I'm here now with Janet Stemwedel, the chair of the philosophy department at San Jose State University in California. Janet has participated in many panels and discussions on animal research, including the last time we did this topic in 2011. She's also been a member on an institutional animal care and use committee, or IACUC, which oversees animal research as it's being done. Thanks so much for joining us, Janet. Thank you for having me. Now we've heard from John Hadley about deontological animal rights theory and utilitarian animal rights theory. Do you have an ethical standpoint on animal research yourself? I'm not sure I have one that I would describe as a coherent
3: theory, but I can tell you something about how I approach it as someone uh, who cares a lot about ethics and understands something about science. So my view is that we have to recognize that non-human animals have the ability to feel pain or distress, and that it's a good thing to minimize that as far as we can, um, especially if we're sort of bringing these animals into our world in a research context. But I also believe that we have strong obligations, not just to minimize pain and distress for non-human animals, but we have strong obligations to try and use our scientific tools to help other human members of our moral community including patients for whom science hasn't necessarily answered all the questions that could give them better lives. So I feel like we're in this space where we are trying as hard as we can to balance the obligation to reduce pain and distress for non-human animals and to build useful scientific knowledge. And I think what that means is uh, my view of whether research with non-human animals is ethical is very much on a case-by-case basis. I need to know the details of what's happening to the animals and of what knowledge is going to be produced by doing so.
1: So this is a very kind of carefully balanced – you were just talking about balance – it's a very carefully balanced – kind of argument. How did you arrive at this viewpoint? What kind of things have you taken into account?
3: A lot of it has been sort of trying to pay attention to the world around me. (laughs) Um, I am someone who's been a vegetarian for almost 30 years. So I sort of made a decision for myself that eating animals was not an ethical bill I was willing to pay, right? Um, but I also recognize that there's humans in my world who are not super healthy, uh, and that their unhealthiness is not purely a result of lifestyle choices or things like that. I mean, some, some people who will say, we absolutely don't need more research with non-human animals, we've got all the knowledge we need, all we need is for people to, you know, live better and stop eating animals, and then they'll all be totally healthy. Uh, i paid enough attention that I know that that's not actually true. And I also sort of recognize that science has this ability uh, to build useful knowledge that can be shared widely. So there's a way in which using a 100 mice to build a piece of research strikes me as much more ethically defensible than using, you know, a chicken to keep me fed if there's something non-animal that could do the job just as well.
1: And you really put your money where your mouth is with regards to this viewpoint. You have actually participated on institutional animal care and use committees. We call them IACUCs. Why did you decide to do that? Uh, Partly I was asked
3: (laughs) by a colleague of mine who was um, the primary... Uh, chair for the non-scientist member of the IACUC. So many, if not all IACUCs have a member specifically that needs to be someone who's not a scientist working with animals in a research setting to represent sort of the ethical concerns of the public. Our IACUC also has a um, a non-affiliated member. And on some committees, the non-scientist and non-affiliated member are the same person, but we've got two of us. So it seemed interesting to me. It was an opportunity to help a colleague out to get a little bit more committee experience on my road to tenure. And it just ended up being really important in shaping my views, just having a concrete answer in my head to, well, what kind of research is happening at my institution that involves animals and what is it trying to achieve and what do the animals go through in that research and also what kinds of teaching activities use animals and what are, what are the circumstances around that? What is the experience like not only for the animals, but also for the students Uh, So it's, yeah, it's been eye-opening in terms of um, not having animal research be this black box with a question mark on it. But, you know, being a set of very concrete uh, research agendas.
1: And what exactly does an IACUC do? How does it work?
3: Okay, so... Any piece of research or teaching that happens with non-human animals at an institution like a college or university, but also in the private sector, uh, is going to go through an IACUC. The IACUC is going to look at the protocol. The protocol is going to describe this is the question we're trying to answer. These are the methods we're using to try and answer it. This is what kind of non-human animal, how many um, that we plan on using. This is why this is the appropriate animal to use to answer the scientific question. This is why we need animals at all to answer the scientific question. So protocols have to address within them a justification for Using animals to answer the question and they have to reflect a literature search for non-animal ways to answer the question if such might exist. They have to address how um, the interaction with the animal is refined as much as possible to reduce, to minimize the pain and distress and even the boredom that the animal might feel, either as part of the research proper or as it's sitting in the vivarium between interactions with the researcher. Uh, So all of this stuff has to be addressed. There has to be a justification for why the number of animals that's being used is not too many, not so many that you don't need them because you've already gotten all the data you need really to answer the question. And you have to show with that justification of numbers that you're not actually using too few animals. You have to address how, um, this is enough animals to use that you can be sure that you're going to get data that's meaningful rather than, you know, too scanty to draw any kind of useful conclusions from. Uh, and so the IACUC looks at these proposals. Um, usually comes up with a bunch of questions, you know, either things that are not described clearly enough in the protocol. It might be that there's not quite enough detail. It might be that the detail is clearly aimed at an audience of other scientists, where the IACUC uh, gets to say, actually, you need to explain this in plain language so that a non-scientist could understand it too. Once the IACUC has collected questions they have about the protocol, those are usually funneled back to the researcher. The researcher answers them. And the IACUC looks at those answers and they see if all of their questions have been answered to their satisfaction or if they need a little bit more. Sometimes the researcher is invited to come to the IACUC's meeting to actually explain things in person or answer questions in person. And then ultimately, um, if the IACUC is satisfied, the IACUC will approve a protocol for up to three years. Uh, but then even with a three year r- approval, there's an annual report that the researcher needs to give to the IACUC to say, here's how it went for this year. Um, they have to identify whether there was any unexpected morbid, morbidity or mortality. Um, if there's, any changes that they want to make in the protocols. Usually the annual report is a good time for them also to ask for an amendment to the procedures they originally had approved. Uh, And it's entirely possible, depending on how things go, that an IACUC might say after an annual review, you know, we're not going to approve this for more. You know, if we're concerned with how it went, we might say there need to be substantial changes before we'll feel comfortable improving a continuation of this. So,
1: As someone who has written many IACUC protocols, it's it's a big pile of paperwork, I can tell you that. It
3: is. And actually, um, most animal care programs and IACUC coordinators work as hard as they can to try and streamline how much paperwork is involved, you know, partly just for the sanity of the committee. Because uh, any paperwork a researcher is struggling with is paperwork that the committee on the other end is going to have to fight their way through. Uh, But the other thing, too, is animal care programs and IACUC coordinators are working really hard to create conditions where uh, the IACUC is not seen as like the protocol cops. Where there's sort of a a feeling of collaboration, a feeling of if something's not going as well as you want it to, can you look to the animal care program and the IACUC as a resource to help you figure it out, to help it go better? Uh, Because as far as I can tell, and all the the researchers whose protocols I've seen come through our IACUC, there's not a one of them who wants things to be bad for the animals, Right? There's there's no reason to believe that making things bad for the animals actually results in good data. And it makes it hard for people to come in and and do the research if they know it's going to be bad for the animals too. So the researchers are on board with saying, let us have as little wear and tear on these animals in terms of pain, distress, boredom as we can. And the IACUC is on board with that too. That's our primary concern. Uh, and then, you know, we have uh, semi-annual inspections of facilities, of vivariums, where the animals are, of procedure spaces, which are separate from the vivarium, so that animals are not freaking out, hearing their compatriots, you know, having a procedure done, Um and we also do post-approval monitoring of protocols. Uh, and again, that's not, you know, the IACUC showing up to be like IRS auditors, but it's showing up to, to help us understand in a really concrete way what is happening, you know, in a way that doesn't always jump right off the page of the written protocol at you. Actually seeing what the procedure looks like or seeing what a teaching activity looks like and how involved the students are in whatever animal handling there is and how nervous or calm they are and how much backup they get. That's really useful to us in making sure that we understand how the animals in our institution are getting used and what we can do to improve that.
1: And most... Scientists, I I would say probably all animal research scientists, especially in the United States, usually work on something called, uh, under an idea called the three R's. Yeah. Um, It's reduce, uh, refine, and... And replace. Replace, yes. Yeah. So replace is is
3: the one that you have to address in the protocol about why do you use animals at all to answer the scientific question. Although I guess I've sometimes heard... People putting the, could you shift to um, a different organism? Sometimes that gets put under replace. You know, instead of answering this question with non-human primates, could you answer it with guinea pigs? So some people will call that a replacement. Other people will call that a refinement. Um, Refining is often about, you know, what's the procedure that's going to be the least painful or distressful for the animal? Is there a way... That we can get this data um, and give the animals anesthesia so they're less freaked out about the procedure or, you know, give them supportive care if anesthesia would somehow mess with the levels that we're trying to measure here. Um, so that's refinement. Um, and then reduction is trying to establish that you're using the minimum number of animals you need to get statistically significant data. So, again, that doesn't mean use really, really small numbers of animals because sometimes you need to use more animals than you might think, you know, after you've had a chat with your friendly biostatistician to make sure that your data are really going to be something you can interpret as telling you something real about the phenomenon you're trying to understand rather than about noise.
1: Now, speaking of the three R's, there was an NPR report that came out on April 10th that aired on Morning Edition, which argued that many scientific studies in animals don't end up reproducing or translating to people. And some of the scientists in the article argued for more testing of human cells or other methods, the idea of replacing. What did you think?
3: Um, I think that it's true that reprodu- reproducing results of animal studies is challenging um I will say as a uh recovering physical chemist that reproducing any result in science as far as I can tell uh can be challenging so there there's a number of things going on um animals for sure um are more variable than uh Jar of chemicals from the stockroom, because they're living things. They're critters. Critters have natural variation, um, and there's also sort of these habits, maybe, of figuring out as a scientist what details of what you actually did ought to be in the paper where you're reporting what you found. Um, where Uh, Practices vary a lot. Practices vary often uh, on the basis of what you've been taught or what kind of journal articles you're looking at as your model of, okay, here's the kind of information I need to have. So there's a set of standards called the ARRIVE standards standards that researchers, especially in Europe, have been very enthusiastic about. I don't know how widely embraced they are or whether particular scientific journals are enforcing them. But one of the big ideas behind these standards is researchers publishing results about uh, studies with animals ought to have more detail about what exactly they did, about exactly how many animals they used, exactly what strains um, they should um, sort of be as unambiguous as possible about what their, um, you know, what kinds of, phenomenal things they're looking at that they're describing in particular ways as a result. Sort of the hope being if you share more details, it's more likely that someone can pick up the paper that you've published and figure out First of all, how it compares to research they may be doing. And second of all, um, figure out potentially how to reproduce it if they wanted to. And then we could see if under the conditions that you really used, that you've now fully described in your published paper, um, whether you found a robust phenomenon, something that someone else in a different lab working with the same instructions could find too. Um, but I guess there's another issue that was raised in that NPR story, which was, um, that maybe ironically, maybe not ironically, I guess I shouldn't weigh in on irony. It's been a while since I've worn the irony hat. Um, one of the issues that's a little Difficult in translating results of animal research uh, to figure out if they tell us anything about analogous diseases or situations in humans is to improve reproducibility. Scientists tend to work with very, very highly controlled strains of animals, mice, you know, whatever, they will, they will say, what I need is this one particular strain of mice, I need the mice to be genetically identical to each other, you know, and what you end up finding is here's a phenomenon that seems to be robust in this one really narrow kind of mouse that I, you know, tested 50 of, or something like that. Uh, unless you are treating only human clones on the other end, translationally, that leaves a lot of questions open. Uh, so there's, there's also this worry about if we get too focused on control every single parameter so that all of our results really are as fully reproducible as possible, do we end up straying from the territory that would help us answer our target questions better? And that's a tough one. It's a trade off.
1: So how do you do that? Then how do you, you know, have the rigorous control needed to produce a robust effect and not lose a lot of your translational abilities?
3: Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure I have a great answer to that. It might be the case that what it, comes down to in practice is lots of different research groups asking questions in the same territory, but doing it slightly differently, doing it with non-identical animal models. Uh, That might be the thing that ends up telling us the most, but I don't know. Um, There, there are for sure there are other kinds of, um, Things that researchers are trying to develop that from the point of view of answering questions about human bodies and human health are promising and exciting and, you know, might vastly reduce the number of non-human animals used in such studies. So the organ-on-a-chip kind of technology, which is super cool, where you can, you know, use uh, a physical substrate to grow liver cells, or stomach cells, or lung cells, and you can flow different things um, past, you know, the inside surface versus the outside surface of these layers of cells that you're essentially growing in culture and then you can hook up your organs on a chip in different orders to sort of see if the drug is going through and it's going through this organ first and then the next organ what would that look like with actual living human cells on these chips i mean that's that's pretty cool uh, but that's also a technology that right now, as far as I know, you can't, you know, pick up a catalog and order them. Uh, and the validation of organ on a chip as a research tool has depended, among other things, on animal studies.
1: You know, they actually, I think it was two weeks ago, uh, I saw a menstrual cycle on a chip. Cool. They managed to get, I think it was a combination of mouse, they, they it was mouse cells in particular, mouse ovarian cells responding to a twenty-eight day uh hormone cycle um analogous to that of a human. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I thought that was yeah. especially interesting.
3: And hey, actually, you know, if we're doing human organs on a chip, you're you're exactly right. There's there's no reason um that mouse organs on a chip, or rat organs on a chip, or rabbit organs on a chip, you know, once we figure out how to do, um, you know, these organs on a chip. Uh, this is something I think scientists will be very enthusiastic about, because it will be much easier to tell if something goes wrong with the system, which part of the system it is. I mean, it's easier to, to swap in and swap out particular organs on a chip than to, you know, look at your mouse whose organs are Hidden under, you know, skin and fur and things, and say, what is wrong with you today?
1: And some people would argue. We've talked a little bit about, you know, um, computer models and organs on chips and cell models. Some people would argue that once those get to get to a point where all scientists can use them, animal research is no longer warranted. And there are some people saying that that time is now. Animal research is no longer warranted. Let's do cells. Let's do computers. Let's call it done. What do you think is the future for animal research?
3: I mean, I think it depends a lot on what kind of research you're talking about. Because in a lot of the discussion, when people say animal research, I think they're mostly thinking of biomedical research and that is not that is not all of animal research i'm at an institution where actually most of the protocols are sees are field research uh we've got people studying in the wild you know what's going on with the populations of fish or of small mammals in the woodlands or you know um how are the the sea lions in the areas near the California coast, you know, what's, what's going on with them? How are they responding to climate change? So a lot of the kinds of research we're doing aren't even aimed directly at, let's cure a human disease, but it's trying to understand non-human animals as part of the natural environment that we share with them. And much of it is, is even aimed in, direction of doing something good for their population sort of conservation goals so I imagine as long as um, we keep those animals from going extinct that kind of research will still have its place (laughs) and there's also I guess you know these areas of biomedical research that some people will try to argue are um, unnecessary that they're superfluous that um So I'm thinking especially uh, research around things like addiction, but also research around things like obesity. Um, there's, there's this thing that happens sometimes where people consciously or unconsciously are making moral judgments about, um, other humans with certain kinds of mental or Physical issues and saying um, that's that's not something for medicine to cure. That's something for them to you know straighten up and be a better person. Um, even though the research suggests that it's way more complicated than that, and you know we we are moral creatures, but we're also biological creatures, and that's going to impose some constraints to what we can do with sheer force of will. Uh, unless we're prepared to cut off whole portions of the human community, you know, if, if if we're comfortable making moral judgments about people's medical conditions, um, I guess we could say maybe we don't need whole lines of research. But I'm not comfortable making those judgments. Neither am so, I. <laughs> I think we still need that research and, you know, and, and actually it turns out sometimes who's struggling with an issue will change people's, uh, moral compass on whether that's something that requires research or not. It sort of seems like, um, people grappling with opiate addiction has suddenly become a thing to take much more seriously now that, folks know that a substantial portion of white people are in that situation, which, which strikes me as interesting. Um, (laughs) So I, you know, I'm inclined to think we, we need to listen hard, not just to people who are saying, I feel icky about this, but we maybe need to get ourselves collectively to a place where we're able to listen to the voices of people whose science, could help but hasn't fully helped yet you know as long as those questions remain um, there may be a place for animal research i hope that research will continue to get more humane and uh, more reproducible and more effective at answering the questions but again we're looking for answers that aren't in the back of the book which means sometimes you know almost always. It's not a straight path from here's the hypothesis to here's the answer to our question.
1: Well, Janet, thank you so much. It is always such a pleasure.
3: Well, thank you for having me.
1: We've linked to the NPR report we referenced earlier and more information about Janet weddle including her awesome Twitter account at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave us a review. Good reviews and ratings really do make a difference. You can also find our Patreon page, where if you've got a few dollars burning a hole in your pocket, you can support us with a monthly donation in the name of science. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People.
0: Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders.